0: Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show, episode 20. Here we are on Monday, November 7th, just before the election, uh, just before the midterm election coming up. All indicators are pointing to a red wave. We've seen the narrative change on all this over the past several months. First, it was a red wave. Uh, really, that trend began during and after the, ba- the botched uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan that Biden engaged in last August. That persisted. And then the media sort of told us, well, no, uh, this abortion decision from the Supreme Court changes everything. And there was this implication when the Supreme Court draft decision leaked, which doesn't happen. It's an unprecedented sort of thing, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, Never happened in recent memory, at least. When that leaked, there was this discussion of, well, you know, son of a gun. Republicans were going to win this. But too bad for them now. Now that we know that abortion is going to be declared no longer a constitutional right by the Supreme Court, well, now now they don't have a chance in the midterms. Now Democrats are going to wipe them out. And then this narrative really sprouted. And when the ultimate Dobbs decision came out, uh, that became a prevailing narrative, despite the fact there wasn't much evidence for it. During that time, of course, the job market has cooled in this country significantly, the labor shortage has cooled. Inflation has persisted. It has not been uh, transitive or transient. It hasn't come and gone. It has stuck around month after month after month, uh, despite the fact that it is now lapping over uh, what was already pretty high inflation into the late summer of last year, July, August, September. And so now we're back to a position where it looks a lot like it looked in August of 2021, 2021. And it appears that Republicans will, in fact, perform very well in this election. Now, all of you watching, of course, I advise you to go out and vote. I advise you to go out and vote in person if you can uh, and make sure that your uh, voice is heard. Uh, Make sure that your voice is heard coming up. Uh, Representative Jim Clyburn came out on Sunday saying democracy will be ending if Dems lose the midterms. That's what Jim Clyburn said very influential Democrat. He's the guy who uh, basically delivered South Carolina for Joe Biden and saved his beleaguered candidacy in the 2020 Democratic primary. So he says democracy will be ending. They're keeping up this wild talking point that democracy itself is on the ballot. That is what uh, Democrats are determined to convince the public of. I don't think it's a very convincing talking point. Of course, the boomer crowd will be quick to point out America's not a democracy. They will be quick to point out that we are a republic. They will say a democratic republic. Truly, we're not even a democratic republic. We're a federalist republic. Increasingly, the country functions much more like a direct democracy in all the wrong ways. We see that play out constantly when it comes to legislation. I'll tell you, I'm hearing reports out of Europe right now and just giving you a roundup on some of the breaking news. I'm hearing reports out of Europe right now uh, that most of their natural gas and crude oil storage facilities are totally full. So they have made this tremendous effort to try and store up natural gas, given the fact that Russia is in a position to cut off supply. Now you see the Biden administration, it's been reported publicly, they are encouraging uh, Ukraine to be open to negotiations with Putin, to be open to resolving this before the winter really hits. It's uh, already cooling off in Europe. A friend of mine in Paris sent me the weather, 48 degrees yesterday. Uh, meanwhile, it's like 76 here in Washington, D.C., beautiful weather. One of the probably 15 or 20 really beautiful days that we get each year. So their storage facilities are, are essentially full is what I'm seeing. Uh, They don't have, by all appearances, a great deal of infrastructure which is aimed at storing natural gas. The way it's always been done, apparently, in Europe is that uh, the pipelines deliver the natural gas just in time for it to be used, the so-called just-in-time supply chain we know about. But in other words, it's sort of used on delivery. Uh, It is not something in which they they really store it up or have a, a great deal of facilities to store it up. And simply storing as much gas as they can is not going to be sufficient to get them through the winter while keeping prices stable, while keeping people warm, uh, given the cutoffs that have come from Russia. They are dependent on Russian gas. Even the UK, which is a much smaller consumer of Russian gas, they get a lot more gas from uh, Norway and, and areas of the North Sea. They are preparing for a freezing winter. Uh, they are in a situation which reports out of the UK suggest that they are. They have these warming centers where pensioners, old people, will basically, during the daytime, they will go to these centers and maybe longer where it's a big warehouse or some kind of large square footage facility. They will, le- they will basically live in the facility uh, during as much time as they can, and that facility will be warmed because they won't be able to afford to warm their homes. I have seen these rather apocalyptic uh, predictions that part of what will happen is that you will see uh, a situation where uh, you're going to have black mold that takes over in much of the UK because the UK is a very soggy country. Apparently in the winter, if you let homes get too cold in the UK, they start to get a lot of mold. And the mold is, uh, in the case of black mold, particularly harmful to children. Uh, it can cause permanent damage to their respiratory systems, to adults as well. In fact, I, uh, I knew someone who died in their 30s of black mold. Uh, they had a black mold situation in their home. Kids were okay. Husband was okay. Wife passed away. 32, 33 years old. Just, I mean, her lungs just failed. And her other system shut down. Uh, and, it, and it can make a home permanently condemned. That's one of the factors that is being talked about in the UK and in fact, in some other parts of Europe as well. So that's happening. Nobody's really clear about what to do there. It seems like they're trying to press for a resolution to the conflict quickly. There are reports of massive layoffs all across the economy, making the news in the last 24 hours, massive layoffs at Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook. Facebook. They have like 80,000 employees or something or more. Tremendous number of employees and they are making cuts. The market is demanding that they make cuts. A lot of other tech companies are making cuts. There's been an attitude in Silicon Valley and elsewhere throughout the economy for a long time. Just keep hiring, keep hiring, keep hiring, keep bringing in talented people. We'll grow into our workforce. Better to have them when we need them than need them and not have them and not have them hired. Well, that assumption that you're going to grow into your workforce is being questioned now for the first time in a very long time. Those of you who have been watching my show for a while, before it was the Jacob Wool show, when it was back on censored.tv as man up with Jacob Wool, you'll recall going back to the summer of 2021, uh, even into early 2022, when the labor market was was just super tight. And if you were a really talented high level employee, you had five job offers at any given time and they would pay you more than your current job would pay you. And, and you'll recall that I advised caution when it comes to hopping into a new job right away. And the reason I did that and, and I explained this is that I said, well, you have to remember something. If this economy cools off, if this inflation sticks around, and which it ultimately did, the general policy when it comes to layoffs and there's variations of this based on performance and other things but one of the prevailing factors is first in first out meaning you fire the more recent additions to the company they're the most costly people in terms of getting them integrated into the workforce getting them trained to do their jobs you get rid of them first generally other factors apply as well but that's a big factor and i said it would be real shame to take a fifteen thousand dollar a year Raise and then be canned and then make zero for three, four, five, six months, twelve months. Better to build up seniority if you can, and uh, I think a lot of people right now are pleased that they did that and didn't hop into a new company. Um, you know, it's it's something that I think uh, is is a is a cautionary tale. I think so as well. So. All right, now talking about you know the inflation that's taking place here, there was a poll that came out that just really was stunning to me. Uh, this is out of Newsweek. Uh, majority of Americans back new stimulus checks to combat inflation. Yes, that's right. Majority of Americans back new stimulus checks to combat inflation. This is a poll from Newsweek. Now, you know, I don't put a lot of It was a a poll from Newsweek that was really conducted at their behest by Redfield and Wilton Strategies. Between October uh, October 23rd and 24th, uh, it surveyed 1,500 eligible uh, voters in the U.S. And the survey said 63% of respondents say that they agree with, uh, 42% saying they strongly agree with, uh, sending out new stimulus checks to tackle inflation. 18% of respondents disagreed, only 18%, while 15% said they neither agree nor disagree. 3% said they do not know uh, in response to the question. That is just striking. And basically, the the 15% uh, that say that they uh, disagree with sending out new stimulus checks, those are basically your 100 and, let's see, 15%, that'd be 100 and, 15 IQ plus or so last time I looked at the distribution. So there you go. I mean, it's just it's a shocking state of the country. and And it tells you just why the idea of direct democracy, why the idea of mob rule, why the idea of populism is so dangerous. Now, you know, populism has been celebrated, particularly on the right as of late. Because it is a sign that there might be some kind of change in the system, that we might uh, be able to break the hold of the tyrannical uniparty system in Washington, D.C., which basically serves to carry out the interests of big tech, big pharma, the military industrial complex, which is utterly worthless in improving the country in any material way for everyday Americans, for the middle class, for the guy who lives in Dubuque, Iowa, for the lower class, for the upper class, for that matter. The difference with the upper class is that they have the means, whether it means intelligence, whether it means money, whether it means connections, so that they don't have to depend on the government to make things better for them. And they don't. They don't. They're too smart to, to wait around for the government to make things better for them. They're in the class that can take advantage of government spending. They can take advantage of uh, increased military budgets, increased infrastructure budgets. You know, I'll point out that it's been, what is it, about a year now? It's been about a year since the passage of the infrastructure bill, the $1.9 trillion infrastructure bill. There'd been talk for so long about infrastructure week at the White House and the Trump White House. And time and time again, Infrastructure week would end without legislation because there were some very smart advisors in the White House and there were some very smart advisors on Capitol Hill, some adults in the room who told Trump and who told others look, we can go out and and celebrate and do the big thing where we clap for ourselves and slap each other on the back and we can go sign a bill that's going to spend a trillion dollars on roads and bridges. The only problem with that is there aren't going to be any roads and bridges. The country is too endemically corrupt. The system is too slow. The system is too ossified, too calcified. There's just no way to do it. I mean, when you deal with a much smaller country like Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, you have to understand, they have a GDP that's about half that of Los Angeles County, California. want to make that clear. We think of them as the big oil giant and they throw their weight around in the world. And they do. And they do so quite effectively. Uh, They got a GDP, give or take, you know, in the realm of counties in this country. Counties. Not big counties, but counties nonetheless. They got one industry. Okay. But when they want to do 200 billion of infrastructure to turn some desert into a city, they do it. In the United Arab Emirates, when they wanted to turn Dubai from a place that had two office buildings to a place that had the tallest building in the world, that had man-made islands, that had some of the most remarkable urban architecture ever seen on the face of the planet, some of the most gaudy and obtuse as well. And it really has been, a, uh, Dubai is basically a hub for whores and fraud is, is what it really is. It's fraudsters from around the world go there and whores. That's kind of what Dubai is. Uh, prostitutes, uh, sex workers, that is. I should use more delicate language probably on the show. But nonetheless, when they want to spend $200 billion and get some infrastructure, it gets built. Here we are. We did the largest infrastructure bill in the history of this country, in the history of any country. We did the largest infrastructure spending plan in the history of the known universe. And what did it get us? And let me just ask you, folks. Have you seen any any benefit from the infrastructure bill I mean I, I've been through some airports I have tried to fly less than the last year I, I just I you know in the years 2017 2018 2019 and 2020 I did enough flying I kind of got my fill of that and especially as the masks came in I, I just I said that's enough I, I I try to avoid flying now if I have to I'll I'll, I'll go and, and travel but I don't travel for you know, miscellaneous meetings any longer. And and the virtualization of everything has made that easier. People's expectations, they don't expect you to come out to do 30,000, 50,000 in business with them any longer. That helps. But these airports still look third world. LaGuardia, they finally fixed up a little bit, but that was because of Chinese money, had nothing to do with the infrastructure bill, began long before the infrastructure bill was signed. And so just as I told you, it would result in no new infrastructure. You don't see skyscrapers going up everywhere. You don't see uh, bridges and roads and tunnels and, and uh, monorails through your city. You don't see any of that. All of the money basically gets squandered. The percentage of the money that even was for things that even resemble infrastructure is already too small. But then that money gets squandered on suitability studies, on environmental impact assessments, on consultants, all of that. It doesn't actually build any infrastructure. And the even smaller fraction of money that does get to a construction company, let's say, to build some infrastructure, well, guess what? That construction company doesn't get any oversight. Nobody ever checks in and makes sure that anything actually happens in any reasonable amount of time a lot of it gets handed out to the states which then they go through their own slow endless expensive process to then hand it out to counties or do state level grants it doesn't work it 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 just did nothing but basically enrich lobbyists like me and enrich consultants who really do nothing i mean they don't even serve clients they just kind of stand around and They're basically Washington, D.C.'s version of panhandlers to a great degree. And we do have some actual panhandlers now, too, at least seasonally. They come in the summer more so. So it's just remarkable to see. And uh, it it just does show you really the intelligence gap in the country between the smartest Americans and the average American and the least smart American. Some 63% of respondents said they agree. 42% said they strongly agree. Uh, It was almost half of people making over a hundred thousand said that they agree with sending out stimmy checks to fight inflation. Doesn't fight inflation. Doesn't fight inflation at all. And, you know, I will tell you in Washington, DC, there's this attitude. And if you're uninitiated, and I know certainly the first time I heard this out of the mouths of lobbyists and, and members of Congress and things like that, it was one of those things, the moments where I said, Oh man, you can't say that on Fox news. You can't say that on a podcast. And what it is, is it's basically this idea of, well, you know, uh, what the hell? I mean, it's a stimulus checks are a waste of time. The public's insignificant to the whole picture anyway. Or, you know, you see inflation go to 9%. They say, well, but, you know, consumer, that's irrelevant anyway. That's just the average, the public's just, that's irrelevant anyhow. And what people mean when they say that is that the average, you know, worker, let's say, they're just a worker. And if they work for this company, great. If they work for that company, great. They're just a number. They're just a taxpayer. They're just a statistic. And they're a relatively small contribution to any overarching statistic. So what DC concerns themselves with are companies or industries or interest groups or geopolitical struggles because if you move those, you you, you wash with it a lot of the public for good or for bad, but you wash with it a lot of the public. They move, the tide lifts them or sinks them, but... You can't move that tide on an individualized basis. And what we saw is that when they sent out those stimulus checks, that thesis was essentially true. You cannot move an economy from the bottom up. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Just sadly, it doesn't work that way. Going and, and, and you know, dealing with hairdresser issues. You know, hairdressers have to seek out these permits and licensures. Okay, make that easier. Thanks. But, you know... Jesus, that's not going to move the economy. Now, if you go and do something that creates a 1031 exchange so that private equity firms can transact in real estate 10 times more than they did prior to, what was that, 1996 or seven? Well, that's going to move the economy. That's institutional level. So that's the way the thinking takes place in D.C. Anyway, here, I want to talk about this story. This is Tom Barrick. Uh, Tom Barrick... Uh, was acquitted last week. Now, if you don't recall, he was charged under the Foreign Agent Registration Act and a number of other process crimes. Here's a story from NBC News. It says, jury finds Trump friend, Tom Barrack, not guilty of foreign lobbying and lying to the FBI. Barrack, 75, was charged with acting as an unregistered foreign agent of the United Arab Emirates. Obstruction of justice and making false statements to the FBI. Now you think about this, and it's like, how, how could you charge a guy like Tom Barrick with obstruction of justice or making statements to the FBI? He almost certainly never spoke to the FBI ever in his whole life, because he would be smart enough to know you have to—you don't talk to the FBI; you use your lawyers. And he would be smart enough to know. I mean, it, when you're a guy at Tom Barrick's level, you've been investigated by the SEC twenty times in your life. You've been investigated by different regulatory agents twenty times, agencies that is. Uh, the IRS has audited you probably every year since you became a multi-hundred millionaire. So you're used to that and you know the process and you know you don't go and destroy documents or something. So the fact he was ever charged with that is kind of nuts. Now here's what the report says. It says former President Trump's longtime friend and former fundraiser Tom Barrack was found not guilty Friday of charges that he acted as an unregistered foreign agent for the United Arab Emirates during the Trump administration and then lied to the FBI about those contacts. Once again, folks, maybe you did talk to the FBI, but you know what? You never do that. Don't make that mistake. Because as I've said before, most of the time when you, talk, when you go talking to the FBI, that interview is not even recorded. They just write up a summary after the fact, and what they say is what matters, and then they'll say you lied. Even if you record it on your own, they'll say, no, we talked to him some other time, or that's, that's not the whole thing. You never, ever talk to the FBI. Ever, ever, ever. I hope you all know that. Even if it just seems like a friendly overture. Maybe it is a friendly overture. They can still go through your lawyers. Okay? You don't ever make that mistake. It doesn't matter how smart you are. doesn't matter how innocent the contact seems. Tom Barrick here, thankfully, uh, didn't have more trouble than at least being charged for that says here, the jury deliberated for about two days in a federal court in Brooklyn uh, before voting to acquit Barrick, who prosecutors allege had traded on his decades-long relationship with Trump to illegally provide UAE officials with access to and inside information on the Trump White House and his 2016 presidential campaign. Remember something, by the way. The Foreign Agent Registration Act was never, ever really charged. I think the last time it was charged was, was the fifties, until the Mueller witch hunt started up, and then the Mueller witch hunt went to all these people who were well-connected people in D.C. and happened to know Trump, and said, "Well, what can we drag out?" And remember, they talked about the, they talked about using uh, the Logan Act against Michael Flynn, hadn't been charged in two hundred years, and they talked about Fara. So Fara is just to say that if the government of Nigeria calls me up and they want me to lobby for them on Capitol Hill. I can do that. Or a Nigerian company that that is foreign. Perfectly legal to do. All you have to do is fill out a FARA disclosure, Foreign Agent Registration Act disclosure. It's a couple pages of paperwork. You have your lawyers take care of it or you do it. It's very simple. You submit it and you keep it up to date. Not a big deal at all. Well, they came out and started charging Manafort with this, charging Rick Gates, charging all these other people with this really, uh, arcane law. And they allege that Barrick violated this as well. Uh, Barrick, a California billionaire had denied doing the bidding of the UAE and maintained that he had arranged meetings between Emirati and white house officials and made media comments, praising the UAE government because he wanted to not because he was being directed to. Yeah. And this is the other part is that, you know, if, you say something that's pro-Israel or you arrange a meeting between an Israeli official and the White House or any, any country, Canadian official, and you make pro-Canada comments or Mexico or any other country, that doesn't mean that you are a foreign agent of that country. You may just think it makes sense from the standpoint of America, from the standpoint of your business, from the standpoint of anything else to do that it doesn't make you a foreign agent. Now, if you have a lobbying retainer agreement with that country and they're paying you to do that, well, that's another story. It's not illegal. You have to file a registration. You do that and uh, everything's fine. But they tried to make this convoluted case that Barrick was somehow an unregistered foreign agent of the UAE. Like him at 75 or going back five years, even 70, a multi-billionaire, lives in Malibu, has a tremendous mansion, has made a ton of money as a real estate and private equity investor. Do you think that he really needs to act as some kind of lobbyist for the UAE? I mean, if the UAE wants to hire lobbyists, they can hire lobbyists, and they do. And they do. If they want to hire lobbyists that know Trump, they can, and they have, and they do. Tom Barrack doesn't need to reduce himself to the lowly profession. And it's a good profession. I I quite like being in lobbying, but uh, it's nothing quite like being a billionaire. Okay. So you're telling me a guy who's a billionaire just decides, you know, I'm going to become a lobbyist for the UAE and I'm going to not file the registration and and take legal jeopardy. And they're not even paying me to do it, which is another problem with this whole case they brought, but that's what I'm going to do. Uh, Barrick's co-defendant, former aide Matthew Grimes, was found not guilty of acting as an unregistered foreign agent as well. I just feel grateful, Grimes said. Well Grimes was not the main focus of the prosecutor's case, he was charged with serious felonies that would have changed his life had he been convicted, said his attorney, Abe Lowell. Barrick lawyer Randall Jackson said during his closing argument Tuesday that there was nothing nefarious about Barrick's dealings with the Emirati leadership, noting the private equity firm head had dealt with top foreign officials in over a hundred countries over the years. Of course he has. It is perfectly normal in business for both, uh, for a company uh, to both try and cater to your business interests as well as to your political interests. Exactly. Uh, Prosecutors largely built their case around texts and email messages Barrack and Grimes exchanged with an Emirati businessman named Rashid al-Malik, who they described as their go-between for the pairs dealing with Emirati's officials. So the best part of I mean, it's just this case gets weaker and weaker. It turns out Barrack wasn't, he wasn't even in contact with the Emirati officials. He's just in contact with some business guy. And then all of a sudden they say that that business guy is a go-between. It's, it's like, again, you think that if, The United Arab Emirates, if the royal family, if if the government of the UAE, if they want to hire a lobbyist, they need some business guy to do it in secret and serve as a go-between and do this all undercover? No. They do hire lobbyists. They do hire PR firms in D.C. on a regular basis. They reach out from the embassy in D.C. It's all official. It's all ready to go. Uh, they don't have to do something so insanely uh, convoluted and, and extraneous as this. It's unreal. The messages showed UAE officials giving feedback to Barrick about what they should say in TV interviews and input about what Trump should say about energy policy in a 2016 campaign speech. One official also pressed Barrick for details about Trump's possible pick for various high-level jobs, including CIA director and positions at the State Department. Okay. Uh, stayed in defense uh, as well. Uh, Barrick denied sharing that information while testifying in his own defense, probably because he didn't know, and also denied having lied to the FBI. The jury appeared to have made up its mind on the foreign agent charges early on. All of its notes to the judge since the beginning of deliberations on Wednesday focused on testimony about the FBI allegations. The verdict came at the end of a six-week trial that included testimony from former Secretary of State, State Rex Tillerson uh, and former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. Barrick testified for five days. My God, this was a long trial, folks, over nothing. Trump defended Barrick on his social media site, Truth Social, before his friend took to the witness stand, saying Barrick was being unfairly prosecuted only because he is a supporter of Trump, obviously. On Friday, Trump celebrated Barrick's acquittal. Calling it great news for the country, freedom, and democracy, he praised the jurors for their courage and understanding in coming to an absolutely correct decision and said the verdicts for Barrick and Grimes greatly set the radical left back. Well, good for Tom Barrick. It's great news. And, you know, it shows that juries have got to be brave. We need juries in this country to stand up to the political bullying that takes place. These jurors, I don't know who they are, but I can tell you one thing. Their houses have not been burned down by Antifa. Okay? Hasn't happened. Remember the Rittenhouse trial? Rittenhouse, not guilty in all counts. You know what hasn't happened to those jurors? Their houses have not been burned down by Antifa and BLM. You know, we, we live in a country where, even personally... Having to go and hire lawyers, I, I've, I've had situations where lawyers will say, oh, you know, I just would never take this case for any amount of money because I don't want BLM and Antifa to burn my house down. I kid you not. I've, I've been told that on the phone by generally well-regarded attorneys. And I've managed to hire good attorneys. And you know what hasn't happened to my attorneys? Their houses have not been burned down by BLM and Antifa. This fear that Antifa and Black Lives Matter are going to come to your home or find out where you live, and then come to your home and burn it down. It doesn't happen. It does not happen. They have gone to the homes of certain Supreme Court justices. They haven't burned them down. Those people have the necessary security. They're in D.C. Um, It's just not something that happens. It's an irrational fear that's not based in evidence. And you know what? You should be ready to defend your home, if need be, against those kinds of ragamuffins and degenerates and losers. I want to go to your questions here. Uh, folks are writing in questions and I have uh, some questions in the live chat I'm going to take as well here first. Uh, of course, you can send in your questions each week. You just go to slash contact. That's really the best way. slash contact. Uh, if you could put like question for the show in the first line, that way I can find it quickly. That would be good uh, so that I can find it. Of course, you can also support the show financially. Send a note either way, uh, whether you want to make a donation or not. We're finally here. We're getting to a point where we're getting some sustainability on the show. I have uh, recurring donations. If you want to make those $10 a month, whatever you want to do, you go to uh, org slash podcast. That's on the Gumroad platform. It's a secure payment system. They don't rip me off uh, as far as the percentage. They've been really good to us with Predator DC. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a, I've become really a big fan of Gumroad. I've been really happy with... Uh, with how they've worked out. Or if you want to make a, a one-time donation simpler, uh, you can go to Cash App. On Cash App, it is Real Jacob Wall. I don't put that in the description because I don't need people, you know, spamming it with weird notes and requests and things, which has happened before, you know, all of that. So Cash App, Real Jacob Wall. that's the Cash App there. Same as the YouTube handle, thing YouTube has introduced. Uh, but looking here uh, in the chat, My brother worked in Dubai years ago in systems design. He said their payroll systems were simple because they had no payroll deductions. Yes, that's true. The intelligence gap in the U.S. is far greater than the income gap. That's true. That's because we have the most well off, most well sheltered, most well cared for, most well fed uh, poor in the world in this country. There's just no, there's absolutely no question about that. We have the, the best taken care of poor in the entire world by far. In fact, the, the problem for poor people in our country, think about this, it's, it's edge towards poor people, not just for them. But the, the problem that our poor people have is being overfed, is being overweight. Really unheard of. When the stimulus checks uh, came out, five entities celebrated. Forex and crypto scammers, banks, LMVH, e-commerce casinos, drug dealers. Yeah, that's true. I remember when that was happening and I think the paycheck protection program money was ending up in the hands of these kinds of people too. In fact, I know it was to some degree, but I I, I remember walking like it was Christmas of 2020 or thereabouts just around Christmas and I was in Beverly Hills, California. And I, and I, in fact, I wrote a blog post called a walk through Hollywood or something just on what LA looked like at the time. It was really weird. It was just, I, I known LA well, my fact... One of my uncles was a city manager at Beverly Hills for a number of years. Um, so I know the area and it just the, the the way it had degenerated and melted down was crazy. But one of the things you see is that there was lines of people from the ghetto. I mean, just based on their way of speaking and how they were dressed and what they were driving and all of that lined up. I mean, lined up around the block at Louis Vuitton, at uh, Fendi at, you know, you name it, all these luxury brands that they obsess about in rap music lined up around the block. Now they've always liked to wear, you know, the fake stuff, the Chinese knockoff uh, Louis Vuitton bags and all that stuff. That's always been popular in the ghetto, but they were lined up to buy the real stuff, you know, to buy $800 wallets, to buy $1,200 wallets, to buy 4,000, $5,000 purses. And you're just thinking that's kind of strange. I mean, you'd always get certain percentage of people that would go to those stores that are window shoppers. You know, they're not going to buy. That's fine. Nobody knocks that. Aspirational. Nobody knocks that. But I mean, it was like lined up around and they were buying stuff. Lines. I mean, it just, it just every store had these big lines and part of it because, you know, they, they didn't want to let a certain number of people in social distancing and for security reasons. There's really something to see. And yeah, the, the Forex and crypto scammers, Robinhood loved it. E-commerce casinos, drug dealers. Yeah, absolutely. we Would love to meet that jury. Yeah, well, hey, I hope. I think we'd all hope that we'd get a jury that was something like that. His net worth is more than the daily GDP of the UAE. He owns more in assets than the value of goods and services exchanged daily in their entire country. Absol- absolutely. Absolutely. He doesn't need to be a lobbyist for them. They've got plenty of lobbyists. They can hire me if they want a lobbyist. I'm happy to work for them, and I'll do the paperwork. It doesn't matter. Um, Jacob, did you hear about that? What is it? Dodgy what? I don't know what that what that is. Uh, they are exploiting the sixth degree of separation. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jacob, because, you know, if you take emails and texts from just about anyone... And then you say, who are they texting? Who is that person texting? I mean, if you if you want to, you could paint a wild conspiracy theory about just about anyone and certainly about any billionaire and certainly about anyone high level in business or politics. You could just create a, a what looks like a conspiracy, meaning an actual criminal conspiracy with anyone. Uh, have you ever uh, lobbied against legalizing marijuana? No, I mean, I haven't. Well, actually, I'll, I'll tell you what I haven't. Uh, lobbied against legalizing marijuana because I mean I've I've advocated for not legalizing marijuana but it's not been a formal lobbying arrangement but one thing I'll tell you is that there have been over the years uh, even before I was at the firm pot companies from Colorado and from other places that would reach out so-called legal pot companies and what these legal pot companies were were lobbying to do or wanted to lobby to do is uh, to not legalize pot at the federal level. You're thinking, wait a second, oh, that you heard me correct. The There are big marijuana interests that sell dope in places like Colorado that want to keep it illegal federally to protect their margins. You see, if it becomes legal, then it's even more of a commodity. And already it's it's become so commoditized, there's so much supply of it that none of those people are making any money anymore. I mean, maybe they have cash coming in, cash going out, cash coming in, cash going out, but there's no profit in the whole enterprise. And there can't be profit because if they're complying with the laws and the regulations and they're paying the taxes and all of this, well, guess what? The drug cartels come in, they push the dope just like they always have, and they don't pay the taxes and all of that. And how can you compete with that? Well, you can't. And so there's, in fact, more cartel involvement today in marijuana than there was 10 years ago, than there was 20 years ago. Yes, that's right. There's more Mexican drug cartel and organized crime involvement in marijuana today than there was 10 and 20 years ago, according to people at the DEA that I've spoken to, according to people in law enforcement agencies that I've spoken to, people all over the place. So it is interesting. I I actually have not I actually haven't uh, lobbied for it in a formal sense. I've advocated for illegalizing marijuana, for having a crackdown on it, of course, and I've talked about why. Read that book uh, called Tell Your Children by Alex Berenson if you want to know about the dangers of marijuana, just how severe some of the risks of, of pot use are. Uh, buying $4,000 purse with a, a $1,300 check, $1,200 check. Well, you know, I think some of them got multiple checks. I think there were checks coming in. There were scams running where they'd order five checks in or... Say, I didn't get my check yet. There was a lot of that stuff going on. And they had the child. Remember the big child tax credits and all of that stuff as well. Where they get the check for the baby daddy who's in jail. There was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. I want to go to your notes here, though, uh, email-wise. Of course, again, uh, you go to jacobowl.org contact to send in an email. You go to Brian here. He writes... What are your thoughts on Netanyahu and how can Zionist white Jews not be hated by Nick Fuentes? And also, how can you get liberal Jews to stop bitching about white supremacy? Well, Jesus, that's three questions there. Obviously, Netanyahu is one of the great heads of state of the last, well, really of the modern era. He's been in power essentially for 20 years with little breaks, uh, a lot like Putin, more than 20 years, really. He's a great leader, I think. You know, one thing you have to understand about Netanyahu, though, is that he is not a guy who ever wants to actually strike Iran. He doesn't actually want to wipe out Hamas. And every time that there's ever been a situation where Netanyahu has been politically under threat by the left in Israel, guess what happens almost immediately? Rockets. Rockets start flying in from the West Bank. Rockets start flying in from mostly Gaza, really, uh, sometimes the West Bank. You know, shooters come over from the West Bank. Rockets come over from Gaza. Missiles come over from Gaza. Terrorists come over from Gaza and from the West Bank almost immediately. So Hamas has been a great ally, really, of Netanyahu to the extent that they have kept him in power and whether he uses back channels to get them riled up when he needs them to or not or whatever. I don't know. And the same with Iran. You know, if we had just dealt with Iran 10 years ago, well, then maybe there wouldn't be a need for Netanyahu today. But they weren't dealt with 10 years ago. How can Zionist white Jews not be hated by Nick Fuentes? I don't know there. I mean, one thing I'll tell you about anti-Semitism is that when you do see anti-Semitism, when you do see, I, I won't even say anti-Semitism, but when you see an Obsession, or when you see a fixation on talking about Jews or the Jews or what are the Jews doing in America, all of that, it tells you more about the person that is engaged in that fixation than it tells you about the Jews. It tells you more about the person who has the fixation on the Jews than it does about the Jews themselves. Because if nothing else, Jews are a very small group in the country. Yes, they're disproportionately in fields that are selective for high verbal IQ, high written IQ, like the law, like being in music executive, like being music executives, like being entertainment executives. Meanwhile, Fields that require more spatial reasoning focused IQ, like engineering, tend to be more East Asian, Indian, and all of that. So I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't really worry about how Jews can stop being hated by fill-in-the-blank person, or if you interpret that to be the case. I mean, I don't know that I would agree with your characterization there about Nick Fuentes completely. But what I will say is, once again, it's like if it's a fixation on the Jews, if it's a fixation on Jewish power, it tells you more about the person that is engaged in that fixation than it ever will about the Jews themselves or anything that's actually going on. And uh, we can get more into that, but it's 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 an endless loop. It's an infinite loop. So it's, it's very tough. And then lastly, how to get liberal Jews to stop bitching about white supremacy. Well, what I would say about liberal Jews is that liberal Jews have sort of the, what you really have to think of them as is urban metropolitan, atheistic, left-wing white people. And if you look at, you know, liberal Jews talking about white supremacy, the political sort of uh, proclivities, the political proclivities of liberal Jews are very much the same as the political proclivities, positions, tendencies of college-educated urban and suburban white women. And these are two groups which have a lot in common. Uh, They have a lot of trait neuroticism. They're generally decently intelligent and educated. And their identities and their cultural influences are urban in nature. They're urban. So these, you know, liberal Jews you talk about, well, they're in places like New York City. They're in places like Los Angeles. And their entire cultural milieu is wrapped around that. But when you look at the, you know, maybe went to megachurch as a kid, but is essentially an atheist or essentially secular, I think secular is the best term, you know, non-religious white woman who graduated from Northwestern and works as a project manager for a big company and you know lives outside of Philadelphia or in the city limits of Philadelphia or whatever, these are the same political tendencies. It's the same kind of identity. It's driven by the neurosis. It's driven by the guilt. It's driven by the bleeding heart. It's driven by In large sense, the self-loathing in many cases, the rejection of one's identity. So it's the same thing. And the fact that the liberal Jew happens to be Jewish is not only incidental, but it's contraindicated. Because if they were any more Jewish, they wouldn't be so liberal. I mean, what you see is that the urban religious Jews, the Hasidic Jews, the Orthodox Jews, they vote overwhelmingly Republican. They're huge donors to Republican causes, reliable donors to Republican causes, even the so-called conservative Jew, which I would sort of classify myself, conservadox. I mean, not exactly uh, in any way, shape or form uh, practicing to, to an orthodox extent, but very much would characterize myself as religious, would would kind of aspire to practice more, frankly, Um You know, these are some of the most reliable donors to Republican causes you can ever imagine. People like Sheldon Adelson, for for example. So it has more to do with the urban cultural milieu than anything else. And like I said, the, the white college educated woman who is of the urban cultural milieu will have exactly the same positions today. And you see that where basically every group has drifted red in the last two years since 20 since 2020. Every group has gone red. They're all moving towards the Republicans, with the exception of one group: college-educated women have gone plus four Democrats since the 2020 election, according to just about every piece of data I can find. College-educated women are going blue, not red. So, it's um, it's really something. Um, you have to admit the the Yentes and NYC or another; they are on another level. But you know, so are these the white female Karen in, in Brooklyn is just as bad. That's the thing. it's the same it's the same identity fundamentally. The fact that one goes to a synagogue and one goes to a church but they don't really go to the church, that's the thing. it's uh, it's incidental really. it's it's uh, the same identity, same proclivity, same personality. Uh, Austin writes in here, hey, Jacob Austin here, I was thinking about the historically low home loan interest rates during the past two years. Five trillion was pumped into the system, plus however much in PPP loans because of COVID. That was about another trillion, or a little over a trillion, probably, really. Uh, Do you think that this left banks with so much excess money that they were forced to lend out at these low rates? What else is responsible for the low rates? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, you look at Wells Fargo today, for example, their mortgage business year over year is down 90%. They're laying off mortgage bankers. Nobody can get these, nobody's interested in these mortgages at seven, 8%. If you have a real estate agent that tells you marry the home, date the rate with the assumption that you'll be able to refinance at 2% next year, be very careful about that assumption. I would say, don't talk to that person. I would say, marry the home and marry the rate if you're comfortable with the rate. If you can upgrade later, that's great, but don't assume that you can do that and especially don't assume you can do it anytime soon. But I think the real problem here is, you know, if you were Wells Fargo in the year 2021, what are you gonna do? Just not lend money? Just not be in the mortgage business? I mean, in some cases, frankly, because of the way banks and bank holding companies are structured, they don't have a choice but to offer the mortgages. Banks, unlike a lot of other businesses, are are glued to what they call their bank's charter, the banking charter, more so than other companies. You know, like Facebook has a lot of flexibility in their business. They can blow up in the metaverse or whatever they want to do. Uh, But when it comes to a bank they are they are basically tacked down to what is known as a charter more than other institutions are because of the law because of regulations and and just the way that that structure works and so in a lot of cases they're they're required to make those mortgages now wells fargo if they had not made mortgages last year they'd be in a much better position today if they just made no mortgages washington mutual if they had just sat out of the mortgage market completely um In the years 2007 or 2006 and 2007, if Washington Mutual had not been in the mortgage business period, they might be in business today. But their charter didn't allow for that. And furthermore, the the general operations of the business don't allow for that. So you really can't do that. And so that's why they had to lend out at those low rates. And now, to the extent they still hold any of those loans... Some of them are moved off the books, but to the extent they still hold any of those loans, they're much less valuable than they were before because you think about the way interest rates work and the way that, that fixed income markets work. Who wants to hold a mortgage today that was made at 3%? Okay, Joe's paying his mortgage. We think he's going to keep paying his mortgage. Okay, you get 3% for taking that risk versus you could buy a municipal bond from California that's AAA rated or you could buy, frankly, a 90-day, uh, you know, you could buy, well, not 90-day, say a one-year treasury. You could make 4% on that or 4.3% and there's no risk and you don't have to hold on to it for 30 years. So the relative value of those loans has gone down. Now, they don't necessarily always mark them to market in real time. So you don't see that reflected on balance sheets in the way that it probably should. But if you look at the banks in this country, like particularly Wells Fargo, These banks probably, if you had to mark to market their balance sheets today, they'd all be at least 30% lower. Well, at least 20%. But in the case of Wells Fargo and some of these other banks, 30%. Yeah. Because these loans in a relative basis are just not worth what they were worth before. And if they had to liquidate them, if they had to move them off the books, even if they could do so in an orderly fashion with great market functioning and liquidity, they're in trouble. All right, guys, thanks for the questions. Again, uh, go to Jacobol.org slash contact to send in your questions. You can go to jacobwoll.org slash podcast to do a donation or on Cash App. Real Jacob Wall on Cash App. I appreciate it. You guys are really, we're finally getting to a level here where we can we can sustain 20 episodes in. And uh, I, can't, I really can't thank you guys enough. I'm, I'm so grateful and I hope you get value from the show. Uh, I've spoken before about how Ron DeSantis... Is getting a lot of hedge fund and private equity money for his 2024 run. Now, recently, he said he's not going to run against Trump in a primary, and and that makes total sense. He's smart, and there's no winning in that sense. It would weaken him forever, and he's a young man. Is he 44, 45 years old? I mean, why would he run against Trump and and go through all of that headache when he can run in 15 years? And Trump's a distant memory. Trump's probably not alive in 15 years, given his age, health, whatever. Certainly not running actively. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, I've talked about that. I I said one of his big backers was Ken Griffin, uh, who has become a GOP megadonor. They're calling him a GOP megadonor. He had previously donated to Democrats. I think he donated to the campaign of Rahm Emanuel to become mayor of Chicago uh, in, I think it was 2015. In fact, I had lunch with uh, Ken Griffin in 2015. A couple times, actually. I was only... 17 years old at the time. He's very gracious guy. Very nice guy. Brilliant. Brilliant. In fact, at the time, I, I I mean, I knew he was brilliant, but I didn't even really fully appreciate how brilliant he was. Uh, but thankfully I have a great memory and I took notes and, and, um, God, Ken Griffin's a guy I'd like to see run for president. Truly. I don't think he would just because of the upside versus the downside of something like that. But man, would he be a competent president? He, uh, is basically backing Ron DeSantis for twenty twenty four. I should add. Now he's backed his governor's race as well. <clears throat> now there is sort of a you know distinction without a difference there, especially with the way it works in Florida, where you can put leftover money from a from one race into a pack that supports another race that you are going to do. Florida has particular election laws around that, uh, so that's why Jeb Bush, for example, raised hundreds of millions for his presidential run, failed but then he transfers it to a super PAC called, uh, what is it, Club for Growth? Is that Jeb's super PAC? And Jeb remains a serious player in Florida politics because he still got this cash reserve from his failed presidential bid that was transferred into the uh, PAC that then he can use to be a kingmaker, to influence races, to make max donations, to sprout up other groups and other PACs uh, to create candidates from thin air, all of that. So it is a, a unique situation down there in Florida where you can do this sort of thing. Uh, and I think there's a few other states you can do it as well. But Florida, in particular, is one I know about. Now, this is a report from Axios, says Ken Griffin, the founder and CEO of hedge fund Citadel, they're more of a market maker now than even their hedge fund business. But he told Politico, an interview uh, published Sunday, that he would back Florida Governor Ron DeSantis if he decides to run for president in 2024. Griffin is a Republican mega donor. Again, he's become that. wasn't always one. And his endorsement of potential, uh, his endorsement of a potential DeSantis bid and a snub towards former President Trump, who is expected to announce the launch of a 2024 presidential campaign on November 14. So we have that tentative announcement out from Trump that he's going to announce November 14. That timing makes sense. There's a lot of things that have got to be done that have got to be set up for Trump to run. I've got to tell you I'm excited to get back involved in in presidential politics. One thing I'll tell you guys um, listening out there is if you want to be involved, if you want to become a player in politics, what you need to do? I'm, I'm just put it very simply to you, if you want to become a player in politics, what you need to do, is when Trump announces you need to immediately be getting involved in the local level field, volunteering up to field organizing up to field management. Okay. You can launch yourself into pretty incredible positions by doing just that as a young person. I mean, you want to get into government agencies, but you don't have quite that Ivy league background. You want to work at a place like the department of justice, IRS, you want to be within the government? You want to be an asset for our side within the government? Well, it can all start with becoming a field director, a field coordinator, a a, a low-level campaign person for the Trump campaign. And that can that can launch you. So do that. I mean, if that's what you want to do, follow the path. People underestimate. I mean, I've seen people that are just total jamokes, frankly, launched in positions they had no business being in. As political appointees, because they were involved. They were on the list of people that, you know, hey, we know they like us because they were hanging up. Sorry, they were hanging up yard signs and finding other people to knock on doors and all, all of that kind of stuff. So that's what you can do. Uh, so it's a good time, I think, in November 14 for Trump to announce. Why not announce today? Well, there's again, a certain paperwork things you have to get done. Um Griffin, who has given Republican candidates and campaigns over $57 million in the lead up to the 2022 midterms, it's a lot of money for the midterms for a guy like him, previously ruled out supporting Trump for another presidential bid. I don't know what he's going to do. It's a huge personal decision, Griffin told Politico of DeSantis. He has a tremendous record as governor of Florida, and our country would be well served by him as president. He did a lot of things really well and missed the mark on some important areas, Griffin said of Trump. And for a litany of reasons, I think it's time to move on to the next generation. A lot of these sentiments, by the way, are are true. They're not nasty sentiments necessarily. Uh, The big picture, DeSantis has not publicly announced his intentions for the 2024 election. uh, But he's also refused to answer whether he'll run. Trump mocked DeSantis at a rally in Pennsylvania on Saturday while discussing the 2024 presidential election, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. Yeah, I don't know if that name is really going to land. It might, but I I don't know how many people know what Sanctimonious even means. I don't know if that's going to land. One thing I'll tell you about Ron DeSantis is that, at least we'll see how he does tomorrow. And if you live in Florida, of course, get out and vote for him for governor. Uh, But... One thing we have seen with him is, at least in 2018, he has not been the political juggernaut that people seem to think he is. I mean, he lost the Hispanic vote, despite having a Hispanic last name, by 12 points to Andrew Gillum, who number one is black, and we know Hispanics don't like blacks. Number two was a closeted gay meth addict, and not a very talented uh, politician. He already had Corruption investigations out of Tallahassee as a mayor. I believe he's now been indicted uh, on those, but they were already circulating. Lost by 12. By contrast, in 2020, Trump only lost Hispanics by 10. Again, it's like, but it comes down to this delusion, you know, let's get the Hispanic turnout up. Okay. If you have a group, you lose by 10 points and you raise their turnout. Now you've essentially, what you've done is you've given extra votes to the other side. It's what you've done. So Republicans don't seem to get that. Um, so, and somebody had commented this weekend about you know the fact that it's gov-, gov bucks that make it into the Hispanic community. They will vote with their gov bucks when they have good community organizers that tell them to vote blue. They can really get them to the polls to do that. A lot of government money flows into the Hispanic community. It's it's very very true. Uh, so we'll see what happens here. But what I will tell you is if DeSantis decides to run, and he says he won't, he's not going to run against Trump. So that seems increasingly unlikely at this point. But if he does, I think that his campaign would be hobbled by, greatly hobbled by, the fact that he is backed by all these money men, many of whom, like I said, I have great respect for, but their political instincts are not as great as you might think. And they need to listen to people like Jacob Wall. They need to listen to people like Ann Coulter. They need to listen to people like Ali Alexander. And these are three names that come at things from different angles, of course. But what I'm saying is, Sometimes, you know, you think, well, I'm a billionaire. I'm a market maker. I know all about market microstructure. I know all about payment for order flow. I, you know, he makes a hundred million dollars a month or something. That means politics must be easy. Well, frankly, no. And and just as I'm sure Ken Griffin does not do his own landscaping and just as I'm sure Ken Griffin does not uh, do his own electrician work in his home, he really should uh seek wise counsel from political minds who are very, very proven and very much dialed in. Because believing that, for instance, DeSantis would win going up against Trump is a crazy belief. It really is. So anyway, I think that the advice that is basically foisted upon candidates by these people who become big backers becomes something which which dominates their campaigns And makes their campaigns ineffective. I have seen it. Where DeSantis wants to come out with a hardline view against legal immigration, let's say. Into the race. He wants to say, no more legal immigration. We've got too many legal immigrants. Legal, I'm saying. Not illegal. Well, then guess what? You know, uh, you have people like Ken Griffin. They're trying to hire a bunch of H-1B visa workers to do programming at Citadel. And they don't like that idea. And he says, we've had these really great guys. They promoted them within the firm. They've been wonderful. You can't say that. And then DeSantis like shit. Well, I don't want to lose my you know fifteen million that's coming next week from Ken Griffin, so uh, I'm not going to do that after all. Or you know he says I want to close the carried interest tax loophole, and then you get a bunch of messages from Larry Fink, and you get a bunch of messages from uh, Ken Griffin and others say no 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 you can't do that you you can't do that, and then they back off. So it hobbles campaigns. It really does. it really, really is. Uh, it says, this is true. Hispanics will have a disproportionate benefit from the infrastructure bill. Yeah, to the extent that anyone has a benefit, that's very true. Um, when? How did you get lunch with with Ken Griffin? Citadel was big then. Yeah, Citadel was big then. It was just becoming a, a dominator in the in the market-making space in 2015. The way I did is because I was at the time, uh, I had a mentor by the name of Tom Sosnoff uh, back in 2015. I did a lot of content with Tom Sosnov over at an operation called Tasty Trade. And, you know, did some financial commentary and things for them and interview videos. And there's so much content I have from them that's, that was never even released. Um, I mean, just tons of stuff. I was 17 at the time, 16, 17, and 18. And, um, you know, he he took me out to lunch with some very interesting people in the Chicago financial scene of which Ken Griffin was one. Um, so it's very, very interesting. Uh, Ralph is having an election kill stream show tomorrow. Can you jump on there? We'll see. Uh, maybe I can, maybe I can. Um, okay. Talking here. I, I want to tell you about a book I read recently, uh, just quickly here called, I, you know, I'm pretty well read. I have a lot of books here in the background. This is just a, a small selection of my many books. Uh, Mostly nonfiction. A couple of bookshelves just here in my office um, that I keep handy, but it's that's probably about oh oh it's probably about a quarter or a fifth of my physical book collection, and it's probably I mean most of a lot of the reading I do is when I'm stuck in the car. It's audiobooks. And recently I, I read one called The Anatomy of Motive. This is by uh, John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. The Anatomy of Motive. Uh, Now, John Douglas is regarded as sort of the father of criminal profiling in the modern age. He launched that program within the FBI after a very robust study done on the motives of some of the most terrible and infamous criminals of the period. this was back in the 1970s. He went to prisons, interviewed them, collected a lot of data. And uh, he has been basically the, what, the, 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 what the show on Netflix, Mindhunter, is based off of, Mindhunter. Uh, the FBI character in Hannibal Lecter, or the, or the original Hannibal movie, Silence of the Lambs, I guess, Silence of the Lambs, um, is thought to be essentially based on him. Uh, and, I, you know, the reason I read this book is that in doing Predator DC, and by the way, thanks for the huge support on our Andrew Konoshuski episode. That is now up over 40,000 views in about a week here. Uh, most popular ever by far. I think it was just good timing with the Paul Pelosi thing and everything else. Uh, if you guys could do me a favor, if, you're, if you are on Twitter, go through and tag your favorite commentators. Comment on their posts. Ask them. Why they haven't talked about the Konoshuski bust. It's very newsworthy. Talk, you know, tag your favorite reporters or your least favorite reporters. Tag uh, Roger Solenberger, if you would, at the Daily Beast. Roger Solenberger at the Daily Beast. And ask him why he hasn't covered this. It's very newsworthy. It's the Andrew Konischewski video we put out last week. 40 plus thousand views. Very newsworthy to bust a guy like that on what he was trying to do. In any event, I realized that I had done this show for, for a while and I had made certain observations about patterns of these people's, these sex predators' uh, psychologies. And and the more I saw, the more I kind of recognized the patterns and thought, you know, they were pretty interesting and pretty uh, reliable in nature. You know, the 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 inadequate complex that these people have, the the inadequacy complex, and the power complexes they have, and all of that. Uh, but I also realized that. I would hear things about different kind of criminal profiling situations, and I'd think to myself, yeah, that sounds right. But then I realized I have no point of reference. I, had, I just had never really uh, researched the, the subject of psychological profiling, uh, uh, of criminal profiling. I just hadn't. Uh, so this is a wonderful book on the topic. It really is. It's, it's a lot of case studies, really is what it is. It's not very academic. It's a lot of case studies. It's a great audio book. I listened in audio form. I'll get the physical book as well because I like to have both so I can lend them out or what have you. And you know, one of the, the things that came to mind, though, as I'm reading this is that in this day and age, you really don't use criminal psychological profiling nearly as much as you ever have. Because today we're much more focused on the, the forensics, the physical evidence. There's so many new forensic tools uh, that you don't end up going to the profiling of motive a lot in the way that you used to. That's a, a, sort of a thought I had as I'm reading The Anatomy of Motive, this book by John Douglas here. you know, you, Basically, they talk about in the book how they use profiling to determine the identity of suspects in cases when they don't know who it is. These are referred to as unknown subjects or unsubs uh, in the business and, and in the book. Uh, And in this day and age, you know, you just don't encounter too many unsubs. makes a lot of sense. Why? I mean, you think about, for instance, the Unabomber uh, leaving a cigar box on a table uh, in a university. Somebody opens a cigar box, it blows up. I mean, today, you wouldn't sit around, you know, pondering and thinking, well, you know, he must have some connection to uh, universities. Well, I wonder if he's a cigar smoker. Was that symbolic? No, you just say, get me the damn footage from that CCTV camera up there. Because you have CCTV cameras everywhere, surveillance cameras everywhere. In this day and age, you wouldn't say, oh, I wonder, you know, they did this to the face. That probably means that they knew the victim and they despised them. No, you'd say, "Uh, check the neighbor's ring cam next door. Let's see what kind of car pulled up and what the plate was. So there's there's a lot less of this that goes on today. You have a lot fewer uh, unsubs, quote unquote, as the book kind of tells you um this book came out in 1999 so it came out before 9 11 came out before a lot of the developments of all this stuff i think it's a really great read nonetheless a really valuable read i mean between dna surveillance cameras the fact that everybody's got a a cell phone camera on their phone audio recorders and and great i mean great quality cameras on the phones now better than ever uh better frankly than, than professional tv cameras just a few years ago at least in terms of the just the raw quality and the data that's transmitted of course, you have all the metadata online. You have, uh, you know, the fact that people carrying these phones are pinging towers constantly, so you have an idea of who's in any given area. All of that stuff, all of that stuff. So the other thing that that you know is striking, uh, you know, in all of this though is 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 just how likely you are to ever personally encounter. Uh, this sort of crime that will require you to to build a psychological profile of a subject or will require law enforcement to do so. I mean if, if you're carjacked, for instance, driving through DC, which I, I avoid the district now if I can at all, because it's just so many carjacking, so many shootings, so many stabbings constantly. Uh, you can follow the Twitter page of Alan Henney. Alan Henney's his name, local DC reporter covers this stuff. Just unbelievable amount of crime day to day in neighborhoods they've never had it before. But Somebody carjacks you. We don't need to guess what their motive was. They wanted your car. They're a violent animal. They wanted your car. That's why. And so it is something that's got a lot rarer of of an application than it ever used to. You don't have to guess the motive as often. Sometimes you, you still do want to know motive, even if you catch the subject in the act, because it helps you in terms of a prosecution. People, juries want to think, well, if he didn't have a reason to do it, did he do it? If you can tell them the reason and it makes sense and it, and it bears out, it's easier to get, to get a conviction. But in any event, great book, The Anatomy of Motive, John Douglas, Mark Shaker, Highly recommend it. We're going to have more Predator DC coming out. Uh, I'm just getting those episodes out. You know, I'm doing it in, in frankly, in raw form. I'm editing them myself. Sometimes, uh, you know, the audio is not perfectly mastered. But I think it's important to get the stuff out there and, and, and get it out there for journalistic sake and disclosures stake. We can always go back and polish up some audio and this that, or the other, but I um, wanted to get it out there. Okay, lastly here on the show, uh, before we wrap up, I uh, noticed this morning an interview came out, uh, Lex Friedman interviewing Ben Shapiro. They're like two versions of the same person, these people, and Ben Shapiro is like the meth and helium version, and Lex Friedman is like the opioids version. I mean, just like, oh, uh, Ben, tell me what you think about love. And meanwhile, Ben Shapiro is just talking at, I'm not even going to try to do an impression. I mean, just irreplicable speeds, unbelievable speeds. I mean, many, many words a minute, sounding like he's artificially sped up and with a very high pitched voice. It's very jarring to listen to, but I did listen to this, most of it anyway, so that you don't have to. And there was really, I mean, the whole thing, there's only one clip that really stuck out to me. I want to play it for you here. Uh, take a listen to this. This is Ben Shapiro just out this morning, being interviewed by Lex Friedman, and uh, he's basically asked, you know, what what about Trump and well, what do you like about what's your favorite thing about Biden or what have you. So uh, listen to this clip here. In a person who has
1: as much responsibility as President Trump has, I think he says a lot of damaging and, and bad things uh, on Twitter. I think that he um, seems, you know, consumed in some ways by his own grievances, which is why you've seen him focusing in on election twenty twenty so much.
0: I mean, this criticism of Trump, the pettiness of Trump is, is inarguable. I don't know why it's even something you talk about. It's, it's built in. It's, it's what, it's what you get. I mean, it's what you get. Like, you know, if Trump ever sees his article about Ken Griffin, Griffin giving money to DeSantis, he's never going to forget that. And he's never going to like Ken Griffin again. And yet, you know, he can endorse somebody like Romney because he thinks that's somehow makes him in with a certain other crowd. So, I mean, there's no question about that, but, but here's the really interesting part coming up here.
1: Uh, and I think that that is very negative about President Trump. So I'm, I'm very grateful to President Trump as a conservative for many of the things that he did. Uh, I think that a lot of his personality issues are uh, are pretty severe. What about Joe Biden? So I, I think that the thing that I like most about Joe Biden, yes. um, I will say that Biden, two things. One, Biden seems to be a very good father by all available by all available evidence. Right, there are a lot of people who are put out you know, kind of tape of him talking to Hunter and Hunter's having trouble with drugs or whatever. And I keep listening to that tape and thinking, he seems like a really good dad.
0: Okay. Now that was unexpected for me. Ben Shapiro says the one thing that he likes about Biden is that he thinks that Joe Biden seems like a really good dad, a really good father. What? Now, he's talking at the end about these clips where there's a voicemail or something where Joe says, you know, hey, Hunter, uh, give me a call back, son. Uh, You know, we love you. Just, uh, you know, be a good boy. Well, uh, just give me a call, man. Uh, Just, you know, that kind of thing. And it's kind of heartwarming, at least to the extent that you see how Hunter's selfish drug addiction takes a toll on Joe Biden and surely takes a toll on the rest of the family as well. These things always do. But saying that he seems like, by all accounts, a good dad. I mean, if if, if Joe Biden were a good father, then Hunter Biden wouldn't be a degenerate, whoremongering crackhead. If Joe Biden were, were a good father, Hunter Biden wouldn't be smoking crack. Okay. You can say a lot of things about people that smoke crack, but one of the things you find with people who smoke crack is that they tend to share one characteristic, and that is a pretty bad childhood, whether it was because of environmental circumstances, but normally very bad parenting. And the unconditional love and the unconditional. acceptance, the endless acceptance, no matter how degenerate, no matter how depraved, that's part of the problem. And that's just Hunter we're talking about here. I mean, how about about Ashley Biden? How about the daughter? I mean, the daughter, of course, the reason why we have seen Ashley Biden's diary is because Ashley Biden left it behind where? She left it behind in a halfway house. Your daughter doesn't end up in a halfway house if you are a good father. And she certainly doesn't end up in a halfway house leaving behind her diary in which she writes about how basically her father molested her. How, I mean, by all appearances, I've seen the pages of the diary. Ashley Biden writes about how, um, and it's confirmed to be real, the diary, I mean, the FBI went hunting down for it. and busted in James O'Keefe's door early in the morning, hauling him out in his underwear. Talk about jackbooted thugs breaking into homes when people are only in their underwear. I mean, she writes that basically she was 14 and her dad would get in the shower with her, naked, when she was, you know, 14 years old. Yeah, that doesn't happen if you're a good father. And, And frankly... Uh, even to the degree that Joe Biden has had dogs, he hasn't been able to instill discipline in them either. Of course, his dog Champ recently passed away at 13. Looks like a, basically a big German shepherd. It's a, He has a couple of real big German shepherds. They look like those checkline line German shepherds, but they also kind of look a little mangy, like maybe he got them as rescues from the pound or something. Hard to know. They're big German shepherds, though. Uh, They could have something else mixed in, but principally they look like German Shepherds to me. And of course, German Shepherds are frankly one of the easier dogs to train. All Shepherds are. Speaking from experience, I've got a KNPV, a working line, uh, Belgian Malinois, Dutch Shepherd, kind of the same thing when it comes to the Dutch lines. Myself, uh, Eva, and I've got a working line Doberman, Arthur. And Doberman's a hell of a lot harder to train than... A shepherd, any kind of shepherd, really, for the most part. Herding dogs are just easier to train. Now, nonetheless, uh, Joe Biden and this dog, well, I mean, the dog knocked him over and busted his foot. You remember that? Like shortly after the election, I think this is before he was even inaugurated, Joe Biden was walking around, limping around in a boot because the dog hurt him. Dog injured him. Now, sometimes dogs can kind of, you know, accidentally injure you, accidentally nip you, all of that. You can't hold that against him, really. But the idea would just knock him clear across the room and bust his foot. I mean, that's a dog that's out of control. Other reports, credible reports, the dog was running all around the White House and biting and attacking, and I mean, pretty, pretty I mean, seriously biting, not nipping, seriously biting, uh, Secret Service agents. One of Eva's brothers from another litter, by the way, works at the White House. Does security there. She'd probably like to have that job, but she does security here at my compound instead, uh, and she does a great job. But in any event, it's—he's um, not a good father, and and the fact that that was Ben Shapiro's takeaway is remarkable. It's remarkable. Uh, he was showering at the time. Yeah, like he's just gotten out of the shower, and the dog's running in and tackling him. I mean, it's just, it's just was he? Now, I don't, I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to go there. But the daughter in the diary says that he was getting in the shower with her. Now, Todd, I don't even want to go there. But and the dog doesn't keep a diary, I presume. And the champ is now passed away at age thirteen. But. Was the dog minding his own business, taking a shower? Was the German Shepherd just trying to take a shower and mind his own business? 13-year-old German Shepherd, 14-year-old Ashley. Dog ears, whatever, I know. But And then Joe gets in and walks up behind the dog and just kind of touches it like we know Joe does, gropes the dog. Maybe the dog was justified to knock him over in and around the shower. I don't know. I'm just saying these are two instances of, of, of incidents involving his dependents and showers, same age range. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even want to go there, but it's not even really funny. It's just, I, yeah, I don't know. But it's just a general, it's just a general lack of structure. It's a general lack of discipline. And it, it, it does come from a place where, look, Joe Biden has never had a real job. He's been a politician his whole life, basically elected to the Senate at 29, turned 30 before he was sworn in, uh, You know, the age, the minimum age being 30. So he has been a politician basically his whole life. He's been pretty well off his whole life. He's done very well for himself. But there is this phenomenon where overabundance for children is a bad thing. And if it's not carefully governed with structure and discipline... Uh, it does cause problems where the normal uh, neural pathways involved with motivating yourself to start, putting in effort, getting a task done, feeling the dopamine reward after you get it done, that normal pathway is not ever completed and habituated and gone through and can't be because you just, everything's so great no matter what, that then the only thing you can do to, to feel the kind of dopamine that your mind needs to, to feel good and, and feel Regulated and normal is uh, you go and you smoke crystal meth, you smoke crack, you hire prostitutes. And we've all seen this with, or most of us have at least, with the children of very wealthy people and and they end up going off the rails. And that has certainly been the case with Joe Biden and to whatever extent she played a role, the stepmom or what have you, whatever it would be, Dr. Jill, the good doctor, Dr. Jill Biden. So he's not a good father. And hearing Ben Shapiro say this, and that's what he admires most, it just shows you the, the total lack of, of judgment and the total lack of discernment on the part of Ben Shapiro. And the fact that, you know, Lex Friedman doesn't answer back and say, well, what about the fact that the kids are all fucked up, Ben? I mean, that's, what do you mean he's a good father? Huh? I mean, what, is, what are you talking about? Of course not. That's not his style. That's not what Lex Friedman does. Uh, but anyway, it's just, it was remarkable to see here. Uh, folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Jacob Wohl Show. It's been great to have you. You can donate Cash App Real Jacob Wohl or go to Jacobowl.org slash podcast, jacobwohl.org slash podcast to uh, do a recurring donation there. You can send in your questions, go to jacobwohl.org slash contact. Uh, we'll take them on the next show. Thanks for joining me live here or on podcast apps everywhere. We're going to be back here Thursday, 2 p.m., we'll talk about the election results to the extent that we have them because, as we know, we seem to be the one place on earth that just can't get the darn votes counted on time. We may have some very interesting results and situations that are underway. Make sure to go out and vote. I encourage you to vote in person. Thanks for watching The Jacob Wolf Show, and I'll see you on Thursday.